And now, the Rathband tapes. Episode 5. What only the blind can see. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever time it is. Welcome to the Rathband tapes, a series of conversations previously unheard that I recorded as ghostwriter to the late PC David Rathband. I'm Tony Horn in Lancashire, England, in South Australia, David's twin, Darren. It's time for David to come home after two weeks of surgery, medication and care and preparation for this moment. There can be no real preparation, Darren. We are in a set of circumstances that I think those people who served David in their NHS roles will never ever experience and thank goodness again in their lifetimes yeah I've got fond memories of um, all the staff that looked after David they didn't only look after David they made sure I was spoken to considered I know they thought and considered Kath even Angie they were they were angels all of them Mel Marie Rachel just to name a few they were, they were fantastic and David I did have a conversation with one of the nurses uh, who did say David was one of their favourites because he even even where he was he was having the banter with them Tony he was making their day enjoyable uh, not just loaded with stress and grief and loss he was having a laugh with all of them in your opinion is that David all over or was he putting on a brave face making the effort no I think I think knowing David if there's a nurse involved, he would have had. He would have enjoyed the banter, with his eyes or not his eyes. Uh, that's that's how he is. He was certainly, certainly um, not shy in coming forward, especially when he had an audience. Uh, who, who doesn't like an audience? When it's time to leave the hospital, this is probably what photojournalists would call the money shot. They want to see David on his feet. For the first time, they want to portray a frail man struggling to walk. And while some people in the press are less kind than others, that is what they are looking for on a purely journalistic basis. Now, we spoke in a previous episode about Darren feeling that the wrong people were getting airtime. David told me that when he left the hospital, I think he left via the rear, and the photo which circulated, notionally him leaving the hospital, was actually taken at the Aldi car park in Cowgate, just a couple of miles out of Newcastle city centre. So staged the whole thing. Yeah, I came up to the, I came back up to the hospital because I got a phone call saying they were going to release him, so I went back up to the hotel, uh, to his uh, hospital bed, 
we'd already David had already spoke to one of the reporters inside the room, and there's a photo of me and me and David sitting on on his bed holding hands, both in t-shirts, looking like we're going on a summer holiday. Within about five minutes of that photo, we we were walking out the back to make sure nobody saw him into a car, and we were gone. They took around nine pictures. Uh, they put David's car up against the brick wall. And David really had to force himself out of the car to take these pictures. He told me that he was frightened. So here we have the reality. We've we've courted the press. We're now in no man's land, really, between the relative protection of hospital and home. We are staging a photo. And... I don't think David's all that comfortable with it. Then there's the drive home. And one of the things that was extraordinary, if you were with David, I just don't know how he he did this, but he knew every inch of that road from Blythe to the centre of Newcastle. But he would say stuff to you, I think partly for humour, but also... He was proud of what he was achieving, but he would say, it's just up here on the left and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> but the first time he went home, again with press and two satellite trucks just near the house, that was tough. So we talked about senses working overtime in a previous episode. When you live near the sea, that's something that you take for granted and you're acutely aware of. When you look out and you can no longer see the sea, but you can hear it, that's crushing, Darren. I looked to my left because you could just see the the edge of the sea. Well, not the, like the shoreline, but you know, the, like the horizon was the sea from Blythe. I burst into tears. Yeah, and um, how poignant, just that one glimpse of a little bit of sea line, uh, that's what triggered him. And do you know what, David, like, as you and I, and hopefully the listeners will sort of bear, sort of have, have some bearing on, put yourself in a dark room. Occasionally, you'll know what's in that room. You'll have a, you'll have a sixth sense about there's a chair in front of you or, oh, and then you walk into it and stub, stub your toe. David would have done that with exactly that location. That, there'd be a pointer that he'd say, you know what, I think I'm here. Yeah, I'm here. And then he, he realised he couldn't see it. How crap's that? And he hated being in the car, Tony. It used to make him feel sick. Yeah, so once again, a brave, brave front. And then, you know, I, I, I often say to my friends that the best bit of my day is when I walk through the front door and shut the front door behind me. I think... Being involved with this story has had a massive impact on one's mental health, claustrophobia, the noise surrounding it. But imagine you're walking into your home for the first time since all this has happened. Firstly, as the door is shut behind David... That's a massive moment. There's still press outside. It's like an out-of-body thing. I knew I was at home. felt as if I was at home. But I really wasn't at home. Because I couldn't, like, 
be independent and I don't know, that's hard to explain it really. It really is. Notwithstanding the help of those people that did genuinely care for him. It, that really is the you're on your own moment now, isn't it? To be honest, Tony, if you're going to realise your life's turned certainly completely upside down, that would be the time. He wouldn't have, and I'm only assuming, he wouldn't have even felt safe in his own house. He's now relying on people to keep him safe. And those who are in his life are the ones that should have and hopefully would have stayed with him and made sure he wasn't at harm's way, wherever he was. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't transpire out either. Suddenly, he has to start using bump-ons, <laughs> which, what are they, Darren? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're weird things they are. If, uh, they're stickers. They're stickers for blind people. Um, and they stick them on the corner of the um, kitchen cabinets or the worktop, um, so they know they basically feel the bumps. And that is his new reality. What his role ahead will be for Northumbria Police, who knows? Darren was keen to find that role for him. There's a lot of noise that he will return to work at some point. Uh, the reality is, of course, that he never did. At this point, there are two things that really do happen when David is at home. The first is lots of visitors. And the second is a follow-on from what we talked about in the previous episode, the administration of being blind. Uh, it, it, it wouldn't be so bad if it's like... Um like, you know, we're very up to just getting on with it, and we put up with a put up with a lot and get on. It's like I said to this woman today. You know, we've been given no help and direction, and we just, you know, the way we deal with it is you just got to get to some level of normality because then it's normal. And then when somebody like that comes in, you realise that what you're actually doing isn't normal. And you know, and she was on about like benefits and all that, and I told her like some that I'd lost because I've been given others, and she was oh well that shouldn't happen. I says well it has bloody happened. And she says, well, you should appeal. I says, well, there was no right of appeal. It was took off us. Well, that shouldn't be the way. And then you argue the toss with him. And then at the very end of it, she was like, um, yeah, I says, oh, where, what happens next? And she says, oh, I've got 10 days to prepare a report. And this gets past the, the insurers and your solicitor. And I need you to sign a consent form so I can speak to all your clinicians to get all clinical letters so I can pass them on to them. I went, whoa, you can stop right there. I says, that ain't going to be happening. I says, why do I have to sign consent for you to access all my medical stuff? She says, well, it's just part of the procedure. I went, I'm signing nothing. I says, nobody's ever mentioned that to me. I says, why, why should I give the insurers access to all my medical stuff now? They've not even admitted anything. She says, well, you'll have to. I says, I'm not. So I rang my solicitor. I'm, I'm going to sign that. So they've now got to, um, the solicitor's got to ring them and find out where that goes and solicitor spoke to me about what was in the paper on Friday. He's absolutely annoyed, so he's now firing a letter off to the force to find out why they've leaked the story. It's just There's just loads of things that, you know, if you're a cynic and looked into things, you just think that somebody's got an agenda somewhere. 
not only do you have to make a huge physical adjustment, but I think it's safe to say in a world of endless paperwork and bureaucracy, this is exhausting on a level that people who issue the paperwork can never understand. So the, the reference to the paper thing is what we spoke of in a previous episode, that there was an article that David would have to pay back some benefits. But I know David's tone and intonation. Darren, you do. You can hear the frustration there. You can hear that just everybody just get out of my way. And what's really sad is that the people who are administering him, they, they do this day in, day out. It's the procedure they've been taught to follow. But it's like being in call centre hell, isn't it? Press one for this, press two for that, press three for that, and then you're back at the switchboard. That's how he felt, I think, going around in circles, dealing with that administration. And the key point there as well, that the lady implied that, or he implied to the lady that, if he was entitled to this, he wouldn't be entitled to that. Do you know, Tony, David was told by Sue Sims, you, you will be a policeman, and we've had that discussion about I made sure I could say that on the steps to the court when the two had their uh, bail hearing. He'll always, he'll always have a job as a police officer. She, in fact, was responsible for reducing his pay. It's down to her discretion. David was fuming that on one page statement it showed that he had DHSS benefits paid instead of police salary he was livid to the extent where he rang I think he rang up the superintendent and asked to speak to the chief constable and that was changed virtually within 24 hours so it's what you I think what you've got to remember is yes there's a policy there's a procedure but unfortunately, the top Sue Sims, who said David will be looked after, was the top cog. And all the little cogs underneath her wouldn't tell her what was going on. So I think David was certainly left feeling betrayed. Probably not by Sue, by the bureaucracy of the system and others who thought it was how it should be done. Whilst all this is going on, David has to have something, Darren, to occupy his mind, whether that be the charity... Or something else. He needed to find a reason to be, really, didn't he? Yeah, I, I think if, if I was in my shoes, if I was in his shoes, I'd probably try and work out why, what, and why me. All the questions that he probably did ask himself, I think that's where he was at now. And you can tell from his tone of voice as well, Tony, that's our bullish right. You think you're in for a fight, I'm going to give you a fight. David weren't a walkover, blind or not, with limbs missing. He would have still stood up and had a fight with the biggest and the best of them in any department, HR, you name it. He was ready for a fight and he still had a bit of, he had some fight left in him then. Yeah, I saw at first hand the struggle of, of dealing with the nonsense, but I also saw the ordinariness of of life life does go on you've got to shop and you've got to cook and you've got to get up in the morning and <laughs> people will find it 
inspiring, I think, that David was making plans. Yeah, he wanted to he wanted to do the garden, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that's part and part. He wanted to feel comfortable. And what what you gotta to remember, Tony, is this is a chap who for all intents and purposes should have been dead, who no longer can see. I mean, we went shopping on Sunday to B&Q, I brought loads of new stuff to get the garden done. Can't get in there. I can't do it on my own. Um, I've just realised today I'm at the beck and call of everybody else. Right, Sunday we ordered a load of new... Um, I mean, plan is to get the garage all racked out and tidy so I can go in, run. And, you know, not worry about tripping. I mean, I fell over the other night. Nearly ended up to a bloody sheet of glass. Well, there we have it. He wants to get the, the garage done so he can run. He wants to get the garden done. Oh, and he fell over and nearly goes through a sheet of glass. He's always got a job on, oh, David. He used to take, he used to take the mickey out of me, Tony, because <laughs> he used to think I was useless. Even when he was blind, he was fixing up my washing machine or hanging a picture because I couldn't find I couldn't find the joist and he took the he took the piss out of me and found it within about three seconds. But, uh, but I, I always said to him, that's only because you're blind, you can hear it. But, uh, but yeah, he, um, he certainly didn't want to just sit and fester. But again, in those dark times when you sit and you can't see anything and everybody else's life's moved on, it's got to be awfully, awfully lonely, scary. I enjoyed spending time with him. And of course, I was sort of in a, a zone. We've got to write this book and we've got to write it quickly. And... I did make sure every time we spoke, which was every day, that much of that time was to look after him. But you, the people around David clearly reach a level of normality much quicker than, than he does. So I ring him every night, we chat, we get to work put the phone down and go to bed and then I just carry on carry on the next day. Yeah, there's no there's no respite for David, Tony. He's he's living it twenty four seven. And what you also gotta remember, David can't one one thing he did say to me, he can't actually see people's facial expressions. So those new people in his life that are now and there were a few of them that were now clinging on to his, his shoulder for either their 15 minute of fame or some benefit, David was swept along with a, a couple of these individuals because he didn't know that they were no good for him. They were in it for themselves. Later, proved right down the track. So it's a difficult situation for him. He's got to rely on people to make sure he's, like I said, safe and well. They let him down. Yeah. I think... I'm reflecting now on what was the normality of a situation for me spending time with David. I only knew him as blind, so I don't have the before and after. And I know that he enjoyed working with me and was proud of the book, but I reflect now that whilst it was a consistent in his life, we would do it every day, he would have to get himself up for these moments. And 
you know, if you're like a PA and you've got a, the list of things for the day and you think, oh, goodness me, oh, well, well that might be all right. Oh, oh. You know, David's life had become a series of people, hadn't it? And a series of new administration and, and new tasks. And God, his, God. his life's been turned completely upside down, hasn't it? He's now subservient to everybody and anybody, people he's never met before. He's got to listen to what he's being told. He's got no idea which form to sign. Should he sign this form in regards to signing his medical history? That's something we take for granted. It's private. So why should the insurance have it? Well, down the track, they probably did get it. Um, David was obviously in a job, a career that was, or le which led to being in charge, being in control of the situation you're in speaking to people and holding them in your conversation. Now he's being held in other people's conversations. How degrading. And you make a great point there, which needs to be underlined. His entire world is now built on trust that he has to take at face value. He has no option but to trust because he can't do it otherwise you gotta rely on other people and the first person tony is calf he's got to rely on rely on calf so if that all goes wrong who else has he got at the same time whilst we're dealing with administration i have this recollection of david telling me along the lines that he'd been I think sent a catalogue of accessories for for blind people, as if there was a a market for this uh, from a company we've never heard of because we've had sight, and there's evidence clearly that what happened to David opens a door which very few people go through. We had a meeting with her about a shower stool and we were told that was free. But then Kath will tell you later on I had my own, we had my first shower and I refused to use it. But we went along with having one because we, I thought it would stop them thinking I was like obnoxious and stubborn. So we ordered a shower stool but I've ne I never used it. So we ordered <laughs> I mean you wouldn't think where does this list of accessories begin and end? He didn't even want it, you know? He just didn't want to seem difficult. Probably thought it was a freebie, Tony, so he'd have it anyway. He'd probably sell it. But how how, how ridiculous <laughs> that he's, he's got to start thinking about, uh, I've got to have it to make, make people realise I'm not standing my ground or obnoxious. How, that, that's, that's the underlying thing that amazes, well, concerns me, the fact that he's left left to fight all this on his, his own. Where, where, where's somebody that's actually um, there for him, Kath and the kids, and saying, right, okay, don't worry about that, we'll sort that. Surely that should have been somebody from Northumbria Police. Well, the reality for Northumbria Police at this point, as you mentioned, is there is, I believe it was the 15th of July a remand hearing for the two accomplices and there's 
quite a bit of fallout, I think, from this case, whether it be... the number of people that were rounded up and the number of houses that were visited that were believed to be in Moat's world to the very sad details of people that we mentioned previously, Peter Boatman, the guy who brought the taser. For individual officers at Northumbria Police, you have to get on with the job, don't you? I don't know internally if anything changed in the immediate aftermath, I would suggest it would be very difficult as a force to remain united internally because some of those people will be David's friends, some of them will be enemies. And there's also that feeling of guilt. In a previous episode, I asked Darren if he felt guilt but there are colleagues who could have been in that car that night frankly at least one other person should have been we've discussed that but any one of them could have been in that car and there were various other points in the night in question for example when moat pulls up or the car pulls up uh, at a mcdonald's and there's a policeman adjacent so that feeling, the traumatised sensation that you could have been that person in that car, I would imagine would be mental baggage that took some time for decent members of the force to park. There is one chap, Craig, who was deeply... distraught by what happened and Craig was in the control room the night that Moat rang in in those days when David has returned home Craig came to see David what do you need to tell me I'm just really sorry I said what do you mean you're sorry he said I tried I tried to get them to warn everybody um, but they, they didn't and I said well what uh, and then I said, look, I was shot at 12.42. I said, and I asked him if he was on, and he says, yeah. He said, I was on the on the desk. He says, uh, Gemma, I think it was Gemma. She's new, but she did everything that she should have done. She held a card up with his name written on moat. And he said, I immediately listened into the call. He says, and I was listening to him. He says, and I knew it was him straight away. He says, and then I rang the top desk, the supervisors at North, and I told them that Moat had been on the phone and they needed to warn the cops. As soon as she held that card up and I listened into the call, he says, I knew immediately it was Raoul Moat. And he also knew that David was on shift that night. I've never met Craig, but... I asked David how he felt when he shared this information. Looking back at how he said what he said, I think he was more relieved in the fact that I wanted to see him. So the suggestion there that 
Craig would not know what kind of reception he would receive. I think... As David tells it to me, it's quite clear that Craig followed the correct procedure and other people in the chain have not acted at the speed which would have provided an alternative outcome. Yeah, this is a point a bit events. really, Tony, in regards to the litigation. If you listen to Sue Sims, who was the control, the commander, uh, to start off with, she said she would have issued a warning. And then you go to Superintendent Farrell, who said she needed to listen to it, assess it. This is the phone call. She didn't give that warning. It's ironic, isn't it? The chief constable said she would have, who then you take to what you think is a court of litigation. And because Superintendent Farrell decides that she needed to listen to it, after other people have listened to it, to make this balanced decision about warning her employees, he never got that warning. I, I'll add as well, the, the judge in the litigation then dismisses what Craig said to David he also states that he's not going to use hindsight, but then in his judgment, he makes various assumptions in regards to the outcome of what David would have done or what he wouldn't have done had he have been given this warning. And they say within, they had a minute spare. So he assumes that David wouldn't have listened to that warning, which is pretty crazy, isn't it? Because he's a police officer used to taking orders. I would suggest he, d he does his orders pretty well. But this judge has uh, ironically said, no hindsight, but only my assumptions. So that, that bit about Craig saying that it could have been uh, was unfortunately dismissed by the litigation. I do recall David telling me about this passage and I can hear him saying to me, paraphrasing, the call was listened to a couple of times. It was packaged up on an email and sent to Eatle Lane, which is a police station in Newcastle. Even hearing in my head David using the word packaged, it feels like he's speaking the language of protocol there that this is the way we do things. You know, this is the procedure. And as we do know, with the benefit of hindsight... Oh, no, there, there, there's, there's, uh, we all know there's a policy and procedure for most things in the police force, Tony. But this was, this was a real-life incident. This was happening there and then. This, I'll, I'll say this till the day I die. Superintendent Farrell had a duty of care to tell my brother and her other officers that there was a threat, irrespective of where they thought the patrols were. They had they had the northern and the easterlies of a phone call made by Moat. Half of their call centre didn't know what information they could get from that particular information supplied to a telecommunications provider, including various, various people on the call take. Let's just take it back. They held a card up. Somebody had to write moat on a piece of paper. What century are we living in? I don't know the answer to this, but it feels, it echoes of the moment David went to work. 
and looks up Moats previous from the first time that he was arrested. I don't know what internal communication was going on that night. Remember the coverage of Chris Brown's death, limited. But you would like to think that there had been some sort of briefing from who was whoever was supervising the call handlers that, look, there's been an incident in Bertley last night. Just make sure you well, got your wits What will be happening, Tony, is that that will be an active uh, incident room. That, that would have been either split in a communication centre or a number of people would have been assigned to run that incident. They've already got a silver commander. They've got a bronze commander. Like they've got all the commanders in place. Unfortunately, Superintendent Farrell decides that she needs longer to assess a call that obviously Craig says and somebody else has said uh, needs a response doing immediately. That unfortunately never happened because 60 seconds later, my brother's got his face blown off. And then what, what you've also got to remember is you said a briefing. The judge in David's litigation found it highly unlikely that a member of Northumbria police did not know of the incident or events the night before. That's an active shooting murder, attempted murder. You would think, as the judge said, everybody would know. In David's evidence, he went to work. The, the inspector of their traffic department had no idea of that incident the night before because he gave David no information. Wow. Wow. So, Darren's outlined there that this is a live incident room. Yet, the knowledge of it is limited. And I appreciate the police have to deal with many tasks. And, to a degree, always have to be ready to go. But regardless of passing a warning out, it feels like one hadn't been put in the ready-to-go mode on that shift. If you have a briefing, again, I don't know what went on in that control room, but... For me, it changes the pace at which you do things and the level at which you analyse. I've been a police officer for just under, just under 30 years. I'm certainly... People might think I'm bagging Northumbria police. I, I, my criticism comes from my experience and my experience with a number of police forces. Um, now, my, my concern was this was a live incident that was as we will say in the trade, fluid. Northumbria police never seemed to get up to the start line. They were always playing second fiddle to moat or some other event that he was involved in. To the extent where David's warning, yes, we can argue in a court of law about the judgment of Hill and there's a policy of policing and police should be uh, not be able to sue their employees because policing the community comes first. But surely, 
David had a right to go home to say to his daughter, Happy birthday, Dad's home. David never got that chance because of, I believe, that the lack of active response by Northumbria Police as and when it was happening in front of their supervisors. So, litigation and verdicts can either be nailed on with facts, as the trial of the accomplices will show, or they can be interpretations and opinions. So Darren has outlined some of the the comments there. It doesn't mean it's the only opinion in the room. In terms of what Craig's visit did for David, this is a key moment. Everybody else is always, from that point, when it happened, everybody always used to say, oh, it's such a shame, you know, you're in the wrong place, it wasn't, you know, you weren't picked out, you weren't targeted. Well, I was picked out. I was targeted because he drove past me twice. And then you've got people saying, oh, you know, it's um, it's one of those things, it's risk and, you know, and all that, you know what I mean? And then I read that report. Honestly, you could have hit, you, you could have, well, it was like hitting me with a hammer. And you read through the contents of the calls, what, what Raoul Moat said word for word. And that was the first time that I actually knew that something had gone drastically wrong in that control room. So David had been given, forgive me, sight of the report as to what went on in the control room. Craig has also come to the house to explain what he experienced on that night. Time-wise... It looks like a period of, what, a fortnight or maybe more. David's unaware until Craig's visit that actually he could have had a chance. So he, again, I think David would smile. David was kept in the dark about what really went on in the control room difficult difficult to know how anyone reacts in those circumstances but uh, it, it is tony but i still come down to the morally you've surely people if anybody listens to this try and try and take away all the the narratives that the press have put in in regards to uh, david with, with different women and marriage and all that put into context that david was an officer that that was selected by a coward shot and then you look at the the timings and the the, the litigations the, the the judgments there for everybody to read it clearly identifies the time scale and how many other people listen to this record you've got to look at the whole incident it's, you can't just look at this phone call that's received by craig somebody writes his name on a piece of card you've got to look at the previous months before tony he's in prison 
He's making threats to obtain a firearm and shoot his girlfriend and her new partner, who is a police officer. That's fact. Correctional services have identified that as a risk and told Northumbria Police. Northumbria Police decided not to do anything with that information. So it could have stopped then, but it didn't. Then we get to the fact that we get to the, the stage where David shot. They, they've had numerous opportunities to save people's lives. The last one was my brother's. And they still ummed and awed about, well, shall we? Let's have a listen to it. Put it in an email. Look at the context of that phone call. He's already shot somebody. He's already mur assassinated somebody on the front driveway of a house by putting his foot on Chris Brown's head and dispatching him. This is a bloke that is clearly out to do as much damage as he can. What, what, what do you need to listen to a tape three or four times for? He's already told them, I'm coming for you. And on the use of the word targeted, it's clear that the police were targeted on that night. David, from this conversation with Craig onwards, did think he had been singled out. All of these things, just like one more thing telling me, he had purposely looked for me. Like the letter, my collar number on the letter that I found out while I'd been in the hospital. Yeah, so there was a letter that Moat had written in which collar numbers of police officers are, are listed it's quite extraordinary a mental baggage there that moat has been carrying for a long period of time to store collar numbers of police officers assuming of course that is correct can you where do you stand on that that david was personally Look, targeted Having, having, there are certain individuals that you come across in the nature of policing that will be hell bent on settling a score. That that takes some people will will certainly remember you, your collar number, the station you come from, uh, and other other details. What we've got to remember is when you lock somebody up, you stay with them for for some time. Um, not only do you travel, usually transport them in, you interview them, you give them your name on a piece of paper. Rathband's not an, a, a usual name. It's not like Smith. So, yeah, I do take a bit of credit to David saying that he was targeted. I think the element of Royal Moat going to look for him may be a little bit of a long bow to draw. But I think, unfortunately, David was sat there. And when he went past, as David said, he went past twice. So he was clearly... Um, making the decision to do what he did. Um, and luckily or unfortunately, it was David. I think that's fair. I think the reality is that Moat probably kept in a dark place in his mind, I'm going to get one or all of these guys back at some point. On the night in question, and it is night, for David's car and David himself to be identified 
as if Moat was saying, that's my guy. I'm not sure that that No, that like works. I say, I th- and the, the other thing but, to that as well, Tony, there was another police officer that was going to come and work with David who rang in sick. So he would have had no connection with Moat. I think that... But what we've got to remember is David's mind's working overtime. Every little thing. David had his car blown up outside his house some short six months before. So it's, it's this job's certainly not without uh, risk. And, and that's not risk when you're at work. It's risk when you're out of work. And that's something that David was quite, quite clear on that he'd been subjected to. Next time on the Rathband Tapes... The choices I made in life, the other option was for me to be a criminal, and that would have been a bloody good one. It was not to be, because of the risks involved and the penalties. Because back then, if you got caught doing stuff, it was, you know, you, you got caught and you were in the cards. With thanks to series consultant Rob Jones at Ultimate Sound and Vision, this is a Horny Media and Publishing Production.